If you enjoy the conversations in this podcast and want to help us continue to provide great content for the community, please consider supporting our work by becoming a friend of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the JCC. As a friend, you'll receive insider access to artists and VIP events, special passes to arts programs, and unique gifts from the JCC. To learn more, please visit jccmanhattan.org slash friends hyphen AI. Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. This week, it's writer Lisa Brennan-Jobs discussing her book, Small Fry, with Abigail Pogerbin, part of Abby's ongoing series at the JCC, What Everyone's Talking About. An intimate, heartbreaking coming-of-age story from the daughter of Steve Jobs, Small Fry landed on the New York Times and the New Yorker's top 10 books of the year lists. I see now that we were at cross-purposes, Brendan Jobs says in the book. For him, I was a blot on a spectacular ascent, as our story did not fit with the narrative of greatness and virtue he may have wanted for himself. My existence ruined his streak. This talk was recorded in front of a live audience on January 15th, 2020. Hi, everyone. Am I on? Sorry, Lisa. I, I didn't like welcome you to the stage. I just sat down. That's not very gracious. I was thinking walking in front of you must have been bad luck or rude or something. <laughs> not so, at all. Good. So welcome. Ooh, thank you. Um, I don't know uh, if you've had a chance, the pleasure of reading this extraordinary book. I don't always say this, by the way, and I've done a lot of these. Uh, this is an extraordinary book, and it's no wonder it's gotten the accolades and awards that it has. And it was a pleasure thank to you. read it a second time to prepare for this. Um, so just can we just start with your decision to write it at all? Because um, your father had died seven years before it came out, and obviously you started it probably two years before publication, I imagine. But it feels like it was something in gestation um, and maybe didn't quite find your path right away. Did you say I started it two years before I published it? I'm saying, did you, did you conceive it? And then usually I'm just talking about a oh book my God. contract. It took me like a decade to write oh, this book. Oh, okay. Um, at the end, there was a quality, there was a trying to be very careful about anything that was not the way that I wanted it because I knew that there would be more scrutiny. A lot of people, um, more people were going to read it than because my father was famous than if, if it had just been a, um, a memoir and he hadn't been famous. So I was also, I was aware of the the extra viewing it might get, I guess. So that that probably dragged the end out longer. Um, but really, I felt like I was um, I was writing, and then I didn't want to be writing. I was very ambivalent, and it took me a long time to start. My mother was actually um, really encouraging me to do it. And can you her, say why? Her feeling was that this is that if you don't really come to terms with your own history, then you will repeat it, which is, I thought, mom, that's so cheesy, obviously. Like, that's what they say about wars. This is not, this is just my life. <laughs> it just seemed like such a cliche. And 
And it's so easy, I guess, to dismiss our mothers sometimes. Um, but it turned out to be kind of true in the sense that um, uh, with each new uh, observation or story that I wrote, I would understand that my perspective that I'd had when I was a child actually wasn't necessarily the perspective of that same story as an, writing as an adult. My parents were incredibly young when they had me, not just in age, they were 23, which is pretty young, but they were also young 23, I think. And so I was writing about them from the perspective of a woman who was older than they were um, in, in the story. And so that kind of um, had a, a layering effect where I got to um, see them as I'd seen them then and then see them as I saw them now. And I think that, um, I guess we must define ourselves by the stories we tell ourselves about our past in some ways. And so if you change the stories, then your, your whole future kind of changes because you realize the things that you assumed uh, aren't true and then, and then it might unlock something um, new about yourself. So I felt like I, it took 10 years because I, I knew I had to write this thing to kind of feel less burdened by the past and less maybe ashamed. Um, but I wasn't the person who could finish it when I started it. And the person who could finish it had to be writing a book for many years. So, um, yeah, it just felt like a, a kind of peeling off of layers and trying to uncover. But anyway, I felt really badly about it because I thought how how embarrassing to be the kid of a celebrity and be writing a memoir. I just wanted to die. I was so mortified. And I was like, Mom, you don't understand. I can't write a memoir. I, I'm never going to be taken seriously if I write a memoir. And then I kept on trying to write other, th other things. And they were equally horrible. And the only thing that at least I knew something about was myself. And so I kept on trying. And I, my ex-boyfriend, um, I'd known him since I was little. So he was helpful, too, because he knew my family a little bit. And he would say, he'd read a story and say, um, well, anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. No, when you uh, finally decided to do it, was your father still alive? When you started to write, was your father still alive? Yeah, there's And a, was he aware of it? Yeah, there's a story in the book um, about, I, he said, um, I went home to visit my father when he was sick. And he turned over to me and said, um, you're not going to write about me, are you? And I'd wondered if he was going to ask me something like that. And I said, no. And I said no because I thought, well, I'm not actually writing a book about you. I'm writing it about myself. And surely I can't be expected not to, to think about myself because you happen to be in my orbit. So like, obviously, I have a lot of self-importance. But also, I, he was sick, and things weren't going so well, and I thought, how horrendous it would be if this, um, if we, if he got angry because he thought I was writing about him and then he died and we never got a chance to resolve anything. So I wasn't writing a book about him. I was writing a book about me, but it was a bit fudged. And I included it in this book because I was reading Philip Roth's Patrimony, which is such a wonderful memoir. And there's a scene where his father who's old and ill, basically poops on himself and then says, don't write about that. And Philip in the book says, okay. 
And I thought, oh, I have that. So I put it in, and it also went along with my desire to kind of just put all of the difficult and ugly and shameful stories that I could find in here. Because then it just, with each one, I felt more free. And can you talk about that a little bit? When did you let yourself go to those, as you said, the hardest stories? Like, did you give yourself permission? Because we know as when you're a writer that if you're going to do it, you have to really do it. You can't protect the story that you want to come off the page because it will read as protective and it won't have the impact. I know it's a terrible thing. It, if you try to get the result you want from the reader, I was writing about my adolescence at first and I just wanted you to feel bad for me because it was so hard and I was so put upon and it just didn't work at all, of course. I mean, it was like, um, it just, it feels like manipulation if you're supposed to feel a particular way when you read something. Um, so I have two stories for that. One is uh, that that same ex-boyfriend I'd known forever read some of my pages and said, you know, he knew who my mother was and she, he knew how great but also how difficult she can be and said, and I had been trying to protect her because she was more of the victim in many ways in this story. And the last thing you want to do is be hard on the person that supported you and who's gone out on a limb to tell you to write the book, you know, and then you're going to be honest about them in it. I mean, it felt like a betrayal. Um, and he said, why don't you just go for it? Go all the way. And then if you need to later, you can cut it, but you need to really write it. And it's funny with writing, it can feel like such violence just to write it. You know you have a chance to edit later, but the real violence, for some reason, the real uh, crime on the page feels like even just the first draft that you would dare to write how bad the fights really were, as if the pages are going to blow out of the window in some sort of wind and, and someone's going to see them. Or maybe just that I was going to see them. <laughs> like, um, so that was one. And the other one was um, <clears throat> every time my writing wasn't good, that was almost the most terrifying. And the writing was really bad. But sometimes, at the beginning, it was really bad. And I hadn't been someone who'd done a lot of drafts before in college. My, you know, I thought about my essays, and then they'd flowed out, and I'd gotten an A, and I just thought, this book will just flow out of me. Uh, it'll be brilliant. And it just wasn't. It was bad, and I could tell it was bad. And, but fairly early on, I wrote a scene about um, my admissions to Harvard. I had a Harvard interview, which I really kind of uh, tried to weasel my way in. And it was, it was something I thought I would go to my grave with. I just thought, like, that's so embarrassing. Then everyone will know I'm not smart. And what a little, what a little you know, uh, elbow my way into situations. What a little manipulator I, I was, am. And so, but I wrote it anyway, and I gave it to my editor. And she said, oh, that's a really great scene. And then something that was just horrific and shameful was transferred into this great scene. Can you say what that what you what it was that was sort of manipulative and Oh, well I just I I had used all of my wiles 
to get the Harvard admissions officer to ask me who my dad was. I mean, I hadn't told her. I just kind of uh, hinted that it might be a question she might want to ask. And then when she asked it, I would say, oh, well, oh, oh, him. Oh, he, you know, he invented the personal computer. <laughs> you know, and so, and then she actually got up in the middle of the meeting and walked out. No. And then, yeah, she walked out and then she came back in and she was a bit nicer and then I got in. Yeah. It was so obvious. I thought, really? This is so obvious. Are they doing my application? Are they rejecting me in the other room right now? Um, so, but just the way that, and I won't even say necessarily art, but the way I transferred something that had happened into another medium, and I felt free. Um, I felt I, I had created something that was good that hadn't been good. It was a metamorphosis, or it was a, what's when you transfer something, I'm tired, when you transfer something into gold that was a lump of coal or whatever, straw before? Alchemy, it was an Thank alchemy you. that felt um, like such a relief. And it was only when I wrote things that were true that that happened, that that sort of shift happened. So then I sort of started going after all the stories that were like that, that I thought, were too embarrassing or um, where they, sh stories that showed me in a light that wasn't flattering. And then it also gave me freedom to show other people in unflattering lights, you know. So can we talk about a few of those? But first, first to just the history so we, we contextualize. Uh, you're born in the 80s. It's, 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 it's late it, 70s. Late 70s. And then we're into the Silicon Valley time. Um, your parents met how? In high school. And so they dated and then had you. How did that give us the timeline? I had to reconstruct timelines, too. I was writing scenes, and then I had to kind of fasten them to timelines at a certain point. I wanted to just say, the, one of the ways that you asked me, like, when did you start writing? What did you, I get a sense of you as a more straightforward person than me or a more um, direct or honest person. Don't I think for me, I mean, I don't know, but for me, <laughs> for a while, I, I was I was doing it, but badly, and also kind of lying to myself and complaining about it and resisting it for years. So it wasn't like, oh well, now I'm doing it because I didn't know how to do it. And then also, I would go to the library every day and then just write terrible things and know they were bad. And I had a book contract, so that was a first step to sort of have some legitimacy. But. I was searching for a greater legitimacy and finding that it was thwarted at every turn because I knew this thing wasn't going to work and it was going to be in a spotlight. And I, so I didn't know how to even be doing it for a long time, I guess. But at a certain point, um, this same legendary ex-boyfriend said, you need to put it on a timeline. And that was fairly easy to do because um, I could look up dates. You know, my father had this, this, um, exposition, this presentation that I remembered, and I remembered what house we were living at then, and I could sort of, and and then I could look up the year of that present, so I knew I was in the third grade or what, you know, I could reconstruct everything on a timeline, but reconstructing my early life was quite difficult because my mother and I were moving around a lot, and um, it was painful for her to talk about, so she would... Uh, Did you interview her? I would interview her so many times. It was painful for both of us. It was awful. Um, but after a while, I started to get, I started to get the outlines of something that made sense with all the points I had, and 
like, you know, she, I, I was in Menlo Park and I saw a job board. I saw a board and there was posted an advertisement for women who were pregnant um, and who were going to give the child up for adoption. And even though I already had you at that point, I contacted that woman. We lived at her house for two months. And then she would mention, you know, so I had to weave all of these. But my parents were in high school. They fell in love. I think my mother watched him for days before she had the courage to even approach him. I think she was in love with him uh, right away. He was total loner. She said he would make these jokes and and nobody would even kind of hear them. Um, but she, but he was beautiful and he was brilliant and he came up to her. She was doing a, an artist already. She was doing a, some sort of nighttime stop motion movie at the school and he came up, he would bring candles so she could draw by, which is beautiful. I, and then, um, they lived together and then he went to college and then they, they broke up and then. I think they got together, back together again a few years later when he was back from college. He dropped out, but he was back. And and they were living together in this house, house in Cupertino that I have seen. I went to all the houses that I could. And it was like an adult house, I think, because it was, it just looked like a, uh, such a, the house of, not these early 20-somethings, but a really establishment house. But I don't think they had any furniture or anything. And they were living with this other guy, too. And, um... He was starting to work. He was working for Apple, and it was things were starting to take off a little bit, um, and the very beginning of it. And he started to get mean. She felt, or anyway, between the two of them, was kind of falling apart. So she'd plotted where she was going to go. She was going to go work at this restaurant. She was going to move out. She was going to be able to afford to move out. She was working at Apple in the shipping department or something like that. Um, and and then and then she as part of her plan to end this and to end it safely or something, she went and got an IUD birth control. But I guess she just didn't have all the information that those things can slip out or something. And so that is how I was conceived. Wow. <laughs> I was like, yeah. So so romantic. So romantic. Yeah, I know. And, and so did she, you said she looked at that poster for adoption. Did she consider? Oh, she totally – she said she wanted to – she was – I think she'd already had an abortion, which is in her book, so I feel comfortable saying it, but she'd ar- she'd already had conceived with my father, and then they'd had an abortion, and then, so then again, and um, uh, she really, I think, knew that she was not able to be a parent at that time. She didn't have any family support or resources. She hadn't been to college. She didn't have any money. Her mother is, or was insane. Her father was absent her sisters were younger than her. Um, so uh, she went and talked with this woman at Planned Parenthood about, she tried to maybe think about abortion and she just couldn't, uh, she said. Because I would get him mad at her for that too when I was younger. Well, why did you put us in this horrible situation? You know, just such a weird circular argument. But, and then she, so the woman at Planned Parenthood she talked to about a, a adoption, uh, then got moved to another office or something, and then she just didn't feel safe talking to anybody. And so, anyway. Next thing you knew, she was having the, continuing the pregnancy, and your dad was against it, or was he out at that point? Did he step away? So when she told him she was pregnant, he sort of, I have an essay. I, so I had done this whole book, and or a lot of scenes, 
because people told me you have to write scenes, which I think is true. I'd been writing essays before, but it turns out if you write an essay that's this length, it's really dense and people don't really feel it's like you didn't invite them in. So someone told me I had to write scenes. So I, so a scene is like you're, you're taking someone into the room and then you're saying something to someone else and something happens and then they leave the room. You're not telling them really what to think or how to feel, the reader I mean. You're just inviting them into a variety of rooms. Um, it's kind of how I was thinking about it, or a variety of outdoor spaces. Um, but I gave the draft of this of the book, which was like 700 pages, single-spaced, to my friend Philip Lopate, who has been so helpful. And he said, you know, you, you just need to tell people what happened when. So I do have, toward the beginning, just like a sort of this happened, then this happened. I had already written an essay during my MFA, like just to clear up the details for myself even. And then I just kind of shoved it in here. Um, but yeah, so... Uh, but still, it, I find it hard to have ease just kind of moving through it quickly. So sorry about that. That's okay. Um, so she didn't give me up for adoption. My father was not comfortable with her having a baby. I think when he heard about it, he sort of slammed the door and went and talked with his lawyer. He was young, and his company was about to take off, and he was not – he had not come from um, – he didn't have – I guess – there are probably some young men who would even have skills to deal with the situation at 23, but I don't think he was one of those men. Um, and so then she was like, quit her job and was cleaning houses and living in a trailer and didn't know what she'd do. But she's also kind of um, a free spirit in a sense. I think it's easy to feel as if people are victims of this and that and then um, – the more I wrote the book, the more I felt like, well, but she did choose this, and she did choose this. and um, But anyway, it was pretty hard. And then she had me, and we didn't have any money, and we were on welfare. And my father made, you know, Apple went public, and he had $200 million, and things were really rough for us and when, for a while. And when uh, he contested paternity, that there was – ultimately, she won that battle, right? I mean, that, that was that – So he – she, what happened is that he wasn't really paying child support and the state, so the state was paying welfare to my mother. And then uh, the state sued my father because they wanted to be repaid for their child support. With, you know, if there is a father around, they'd like the money from him, not from them, not to pay it themselves. So they, so the state sued my father for back payments. And so they did one of the first DNA tests, which was, um, I think, the top, the now they can test for 100%, but at the time, I, I think you could only get up to about 95% or 96%. But the test showed that we were um, as related as, as the test could measure. And so he was required to pay, I think, th I think maybe three or $400 a month. And his, he decided to make it $600, and, um, and that was over. And then when Apple went public... Very soon after that. I think the next day they went public. The after next this was, day. Yeah. And it, and My mother was clueless. I mean, she just had no idea this was even in the works. It had been dragging on and on and on, and suddenly they want to close it. But she didn't realize there was a reason for that. And then he was worth more than $200 million. Yeah. She discovers that in a day, basically two days. So how – I don't know if my mother discovered that. It's funny. Really? It's like I discovered it because I read articles and figured it out. Um, but let's just talk about a moment like that, because in a way you're a reporter of your own story, and you see something like that. 
how do you respond to it as an adult and now as a, as a parent? Um, the idea that he could be parsing $400 knowing that this was coming. I don't know. I have so many different thoughts about that. I, first of all, I'm not a very good journalist. It took me a long time to get this straight. It's so emotional, too, that the facts bend, meaning it feels like I was moving through through thick, through thick a thick substance to grab the facts and try to put them together. I didn't have alacrity with it. Um, so I had to work really hard just to get the basic outline of the story. Um, in terms of my reaction to that, <clears throat> I feel like I've been living under a layer of batting. I, in order not to feel troubled or to feel angry or to feel bitter, I look at things with an oblique angle. I think my mother does this too. We don't, I, the most straightforward perspective on something like that is that you've been really, really wronged and you're angry. I've been wronged. He should have given me more of his money. Um, but, and I think the undercurrent of this whole book is to try to find out where I could be legitimate. Not only the book, but the book project. Like, can I, am I a person who's allowed to exist on this earth in a way that's um, right and true and acceptable? Um, to whom? To everyone else and to myself. Um, I didn't realize, I wouldn't have been able to summarize it that way when I started. That's only at the end, long after the end, that that becomes clear or became clear to me. But, um, so, sorry, so where I was going with that was, um, I'm not sure, so underneath it all, I think I felt very ripped off, and that kept on coming up in all of these different places, um, just this feeling of, of, of being ripped off, and I start the book when I'm, like, pilfering little objects from my dad's house, little not even things that were expensive, like old lip gloss, and it feels like it's it feels like it's a pile of diamonds to me. I mean, and why was I doing this? I'm not, I'm, I wasn't generally a, th a thief at all, but yet with this, it just felt so enticing. And I, and I, and I started the book that way because I thought, uh, if, if you feel robbed, you're always trying to get it back, I think, uh, to feel whole. Um, and so I think I felt robbed. But on the surface of it, on the, in, my, in my thoughts, I'm not sure that if we'd gotten more money, things would have been better entirely. I'm not sure that I was unlucky for the way things worked out. I'm not sure that, you know, you see the kids who have tons of money and they're not always more lovely. <laughs> right? I mean, I did, so the way that I have lived with that is to sort of deep dive into how young my parents were, how young my father was, that I do feel like he did really love me later. He, then he didn't know me. And, and that he was probably getting terrible advice, this very young, very, very talented, very rich man <coughs> in the early 80s. You can only imagine, you know, give her as little as possible and run. And, and he probably didn't know what was important or important to him. So, so all those things make me 
I think not feel as bitter. And yet when I started to write the book, I realized the vein of feeling ripped off, the vein of feeling uh, like I didn't deserve to belong was deep. 76 West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabar's. Respect the customer. Never ever stint on quality. Offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store at 80th and Broadway or visit zabars.com for mouthwatering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 50 United States and Puerto Rico, so there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. What about just being wanted? Like, it feels through the book as I read it that there was this hunger, not necessarily now, but but as a child that you were kind of keying back in to just wanting more of him, like being sort of dazzled by him and wanting more time. And when he gave you time, I'd love to talk about how he came back to spending time with you. But in the beginning, you can't get away from whatever, he was youthful, he was busy, he was on a trajectory, this was not his plan to have you. You can, let's not call it excuse it, maybe understand it, but ultimately he was making choices that were not choosing you. I would say that that, that seems safe to say. Um, so forget about, I think some of us would say that's a, that by itself is hard to reconcile. And I think what you're doing very, it seems to me consciously in the book is, is you're staying away from the simplicity of he was, he did bad things, said bad things and made you feel bad. And this is some kind of, you know, uh, justice. It doesn't feel, it's not that book at all, but there does seem to be this irrefutable fact for anyone who looks at it, that he was not choosing to own his, you being his daughter for a time that you were conscious of that. So I guess. Yeah. Although his work stuff, I realized I wasn't quite aware. Like the thing you're competing with girl is that he's working all the time. I didn't realize that he was sort of in and out and I didn't know why. Mm -hmm. And it was exciting when he was around and, and I, but also kind of terrifying when he was around. So it was kind of a relief to get a break maybe. Why was it scary? It was just, you know, he's new and he's exciting and and he had, he had snap judgments about things that were kind of terrifying sometimes. Um, that's like this. Oh, you know. <laughs> um, Did you understand the work? Did you understand what no, he was building? No, I didn't. I was completely about myself. No. I mean, as a ch I, my mother also, we weren't, we weren't sycophantic. We didn't, I mean, I guess we were in a certain way. The section I'm going to read is kind of like that. But we weren't, um, she wasn't telling me all the time, your father's very important. <laughs> it was like. Her, his importance for her, it seemed, in a certain way, was defined by how well he was showing up for me. And I felt that. So I didn't have a 
a vision of something outside of me being more important, which I think is important for a young child not to think, well, I'm important, but his work is more important. <laughs> so I didn't, it, that wasn't the way that we thought about it. Mm. But I think also like what, what you have to, you know, my aunt wrote this in her book, what you have to, all you have to do to become a god, all you have to do to become a god is disappear. Say who your aunt is. Mo Mona Simpson. And I think there is, there is a quality where part of what I'm dealing with here is the, the, the legend I have created or I had envisioned for him because he wasn't around. And I don't think that that's so unusual. I think it's just that the strange thing is I could hear echoes of that legend in other people too. But you wouldn't have to be a famous father to have gotten the same reaction from me if you were intermittent. Do you want to read a section? Okay, great. So I, I would love to read a section. It's not terribly long because I don't want to bore you. But here we go. This is kind of a little bit about that myth-making that we were talking about. And this is from the very start of when I was getting to know my father. So he was gone and not really in our lives. I think at some point we went to go look at a mansion that he'd bought. And um, maybe one time, one time when I was quite young, he dropped by. But then when I was around eight, he started coming over and going for skates with me and my mother. Um, sort of, I think he'd made a decision to get to know me. And he was really tr trying because it was really awkward. Um, but this is that period. <clears throat> so I was eight, third grade. We skated the neighborhood streets. Trees overhead made patterns of the light. Fuchsia dangled from bushes and yards, stamens below a bell of petals like women in ball gowns with purple shoes. Some streets wound around huge oak trees. Some had been cracked by roots and earthquakes. The curvy fissures filled in with shiny black tar. Look how the tar lines reflect the sky, my mother said to both of us. It was true. They were light blue rivers. During the skates with my father, I was not voluble the way I was when it was just my mother and me. Steve had the same skates as my mother, a beige nubuck body with red laces crisscrossed over a double line of metal fasts. I skated behind or ahead. She talked about the college she wanted to attend in San Francisco. He tripped on cracks in the sidewalk and the roads. To me, skating was easy, like running or swimming. My mother's brake pad was worn away and her front brake, the one that looked like a pencil eraser, was down to a slant. She knit the pavement ankle over ankle and slowed to a stop in one long line like Fred Astaire. His brakes looked new. Can you use your brakes? I asked as we approached a stop sign. I don't need brakes, he said. He aimed for the pole, hit it straight on with his chest, hugged it with both arms and twirled around it indecorously, stepping and stumbling until he stopped. As we passed bushes in other people's yards, he pulled clumps of leaves off the stems, then dropped the fragments as we skated, making a line of ripped leaves behind us on the pavement like Hansel and Gretel. A few times, I felt his eyes on me. When I looked up, he looked away. After he left, we talked about him. Why do his jeans have holes all over, I asked. He might have sewn them up. I knew he was supposed to have millions of dollars. We didn't just say millionaire, but multi-millionaire when we spoke of him because it was accurate and because knowing the granular details made us part of it. 
In high school, he sometimes had more hole than Jean, she said. It's just his way. On our first date, when he came to pick me up, my father asked, young man, what are you going to be when you grow up? And you know what he said? What? A bum. Your grandfather was not pleased. He was hoping for an upstanding man to take his daughter out, and instead he got this long-haired hippie saying he wanted to be a bum. She said my father had a lisp. It's something to do with his teeth, she said. She said most people have an underbite or an overbite, but his teeth hit each other exactly straight on, and over the years they cracked and chipped where they hit. So the top and bottom teeth meet with no spaces. It looks like a zigzag or a zipper. When they were dating in high school, even before they started selling the blue boxes that let you call anywhere in the world for free, he predicted that he would become famous. How did he know? He just did, she said. He also said he'd die young, in his early 40s. I was pretty sure that since the first prediction was right, the second one would be right too. I began to think of him as a kind of prophet, with loneliness and tragedy at the edges. Only we knew how lonely, how tragic. All light and dark, nothing in between. And he has these strangely flat palms, she said. Every element about him that was different from others meant some sort of divinity, I thought. I assigned mystical qualities to his slouching, falling walk, his zipper teeth, his tattered jeans, his flat palms, as if these were not only different from other fathers, but better. And now that he was in my life, even if it was only once a month, I had not waited in vain. I would be better off than other children who'd had fathers all along. He continued to grow through his 20s. When most people have stopped growing, she said, I saw it. Of course, the parts did not go together. He was rich but had holes in his jeans. He was successful but hardly talked. His figure was graceful, elegant, but he was clumsy and awkward. He was famous, but he seemed bereft and alone. He invented a computer and named it after me, but he didn't seem to notice me and didn't mention it. Still, I could see how all these contrasting qualities could be an attribute, spun in a certain way. I heard when it gets a scratch, he buys a new one. I overheard my mother say to Ron, a new what? I asked. Porsche. Couldn't he just paint over the scratch? I asked. Car paint doesn't work like that, Ron said. Ron was my mother's boyfriend. You can't just paint over black with black. It wouldn't blend. There are thousands of different blacks. They'd have to repaint the whole thing. The next time he came over, I wondered if it was the same car he'd been driving the last time or if it was a new one that just looked the same. At school, I wasn't supposed to mention my father. You could be kidnapped, Ron said. In high school, my mother knew of a girl abducted in a windowless white van, her hands and legs tied up. At Ron's urging, my mother and I went to the police station where they took my fingerprints. A man dipped my finger in thick black liquid, pressed it down on paper from one side of the nail bed to the other. I have a secret, I said to my new friends at school. I whispered it so they could see I was reluctant to mention it. The key I felt was to underplay. My father is Steve Jobs. Who's that? One asked. He's famous, I said. He invented the personal computer. He lives in a mansion and drives a Porsche convertible. He buys a new one every time it gets a scratch. (laughs) The story had a film of unreality to it, as I said it, even to my own ears. I hadn't hung out with him that much, only a few skates and visits. I didn't have the clothes or the bike someone with a father like this would have. My last name was different from his. He even named a computer after me. I said to them, what computer? A girl named Elizabeth asked. The Lisa, I said. A computer called the Lisa, she said. I never heard of it. It was ahead of its time. 
I use my mother's phrase, although I wasn't sure why it was ahead. He invented the personal computer later, but you can't tell anyone because if someone finds out, I could get kidnapped. I brought it up when I felt I needed to, waiting as long as I could and then letting it burst forth. I don't remember feeling at a disadvantage with my friends who had fathers, only that there was at my fingertips another magical identity, an extra thing that started to itch and tingle when I felt small, and it was like a pressure building inside me, and then I had to find a way to say it. Thank you. Beautiful. Incredible. <laughs> <clears throat> um, the writing is extraordinary in this book. Really. Thank you. Um, just to, because you mentioned the Porsche, um, <clears throat> when you were, I don't know what age you asked if you uh, could have his Porsche when he was done with it. There's a dark moment. There was, I think sometimes you, maybe you write a memoir also just not to be so alone. So I was alone. I was alone in this car with him. We were, my mother was attending classes at the college she talked with him about so that she could get her undergraduate degree in art and in San Francisco. And so she asked him, hey, will you take Lisa on Wednesday nights? And I had never been to his house before. And soon we are driving through the, like, California um, perfumed air to Woodside, where he had this mansion that was kind of unfurnished. And I'm going to stay with him overnight. And it was so exhilarating. It was so exciting. You know, just to, like, I'm getting to know my father and we're alone. And this is the beginning of everything. And... Um, I think it was maybe the third visit or something, maybe the fourth, and I built up my courage to ask him if maybe when he had one of those Porsches that had a scratch on it that he didn't use anymore, if later I could have one of them. Because I envisioned them in a kind of line, you know? Um, and I think there was another thing, too, which is that the idea that if I played some role really well, like the sort of orphan Annie role or something like um, sweet and endearing and maybe a little needy and um, I'm sure there's another good word for it, that he would play the opposite role and that he would then become a sort of Daddy Warbucks benefactor, father figure. And I think that fakery, now that I know him better, would have disgusted him because it wasn't true. We weren't that to each other. We hardly knew each other. And he certainly didn't want to be a benefactor to anybody. I, I think he found people washing their children, even children they wanted with money, disgusting, always. He didn't want to, philosophically didn't want to pay his way out of problems either. So everything about that would, anyway, so we're sitting in this car and I build up the courage and I ask him and the car sort of stopped and he says, you're not getting anything. And, and it just, it had, it had a valence I didn't understand because I, I was nine. I didn't understand what it meant just that it was bad, that it was, that I had been asking for something and I, I hadn't been asking for money. I'd been asking for so much more and that it just shut it down in the most terrifying way. Um, and I was in that moment very alone, right? I mean, you remember this your whole life, but nobody else was with you. And so that's another wonderful thing about writing a book is that now I have all this company in that car at night with that, you know, because, you know, the light turns off when the car turns off. The light turns on when the car turns off, but it's this cold, weird light. And 
now I'm not alone there anymore. And the Lisa. Um, but it's not a memoir of suffering. It's really not. I went to private schools. I had an amazing therapist. My mother loved me. My father loved me. It's not that book. Right. The Lisa. The Lisa. Um, first, he says, it's not after you. At a certain point, you describe a pretty amazing scene when he does. Um, can you just say why it was important to you? It's it's To me, it's very much metaphor is sort of inadequate, but it becomes, you can see the urgency for you, for him to own that it might be. Yeah, named. if he said that this computer was named after me, then it meant that all the years when when I was missing him, he was missing me. You know, it wasn't to do with the computer. I mean, who could care less, really? I mean, it's not an emotional thing. It meant, it was a kind of like, you know, message in a bottle that had been thrown over the ocean. And it's funny because it sort of was a little, right? It was like a non-communicator's communication. But... Um, and that computer failed, right? That, that computer failed. I think it was the basis of the next. And it still had... I'm like, I'm still justifying. I'm like, well, actually... Actually, it really So good. not only did it fail, but my father switched teams. There was the Lisa team and the Mac team. And at a certain point, which I wrote, I just sort of breezed by, he switched teams and was working against the Lisa. And when he works against something, he's vicious. So I think it was a terrible idea to, to name a machine after a person. And I think he probably thought that too at that point and just wanted it to go away. Not only the memory, I mean, I don't know why he kept on denying that it was named after me, but the memory of such a failure and also such a vicious attack against the thing that he'd named might have been reason enough. Um, but it's funny. It's like, it feels like if you reduce your life and edit it really well, it becomes like a high school book that you discuss themes in because this became a kind of continuing theme in the book because it was a continuing theme in my life. But it's it's almost too perfect. It's like, was that thing named after me? Was that thing that computer? I mean, it's so cheesy, but then in the end, it, it was true. And so I kept it in. Yeah. So your mom through this is also very complicated and very loving and also really struggling and pretty desperate. I mean, the financial straits you were in were, you know, no, there's, there's no putting any varnish on that. It was extreme. And there's that one scene in the car where she kind of loses it. I think there was a magazine cover that ran time sort of Yeah, so I was four and we were driving back from Harbin Hot Springs where I think we'd gone for a night. I have a baby now and it's true that you don't really get, I mean, it's like you try to take a vacation, but you realize that you don't really have vacation anymore because you're still taking along the baby. And so it's not a vacation with a baby, but you can't leave the baby. So anyway, I just have a lot of sympathy for her trying to take a day off with her kid. We went to this place overnight. I think we were driving back the next night or I don't remember exactly. And, um, and she just got lost. She would always get lost. And there wasn't, you know, we didn't have Google, Google Maps or these phones then. And do you remember? It was like maps. And if you weren't good with maps and anyway, or you didn't have a map or you thought you knew the way, but then you got way off and then it started pouring. And she just, I think she just, she has a temper and she just lost it. And she wasn't yelling at me, but she was screaming at the top of her lungs in this little car and it was raining and it was dark and it was so scary. And, um, and when I talked to her about it, to write this book, 
I was like, I, you know, and often my memories would be true. I talked to people about things I remembered and they would say, yeah, 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 th that's true. Um, I almost think you, um, maybe we save things that didn't make sense to us. Not just dramatic moments, but also things that are mysterious. Like I'll, I'll save that, I'll package that up and I'll unwrap it when I'm an adult because I have the feeling then I'll know what that means. You know, so there are a lot of, but I talked to her about it and she said, oh yeah, I remember that. I, I realized you were old enough to remember, like you were going to remember that. She was just like slamming the dashboard and screaming at life, I think. And she, recently there had been an article in Time magazine when my father had said sort of 96, what is it, um, I don't know what he said, 18% of the male population could have been my father. So like, he was really good at sound bites and he was kind of some twisted distortion of the DNA test or I don't know what it was. And she just, I think he told her at some point, I'm going to do this company thing and then I'm going to come back. And some part of her had felt like as she's changing all these diapers and she's taking care of me, that he appreciates at least what she's doing. And then she read this article and realized, oh my God, there's not, you know, he doesn't. So she'd been depressed about that already, but I think it just came back up in this moment of being lost. But when I thought about that, I felt there was... I guess the psychological term would be disassociation. But I remember at the time even, just then feeling as if that there was someone in the backseat, this benevolent um, figure that was just sitting there that couldn't interfere, but that was going to make sure I was okay, that was watching me. And maybe that's classic disassociation. I don't know what it is, but I was, but it's another metaphor for writing a memoir, right? You're, you get to hang out there in the moments when you're alone, you, you're not alone anymore because someone older and wiser is there with you and they can't interfere, but there's a buffering quality. What about um, moving in with him in high school? Right. How, how did that come about? That was so hard. <laughs> it was really hard. And then it, at a certain point he told you it wasn't working, wasn't working out there, that you weren't spending enough time or you weren't attentive. I'm not sure what idea he had. I mean, they had just had a baby and they weren't getting any sleep. My stepmom and my dad had just had a baby. They weren't getting any sleep. They had less help than I have now. And I have a fair amount of help, but not tons of help. So they really just, I mean, looking back, I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. So that's the help they had. And that's hard. Um, so they just had a baby, weren't sleep. My brother didn't sleep through the night for years. Um, and they have also just gotten married and just moved into this house. And now I am moving in with them. And I'm kind of a needy child, probably. I mean, the things that my mother and I have been getting these huge fights, so it just seems best to go over to his house. And I'm kind of relieved. And also, I kind of think like, oh, this is going to be the answer. Like, everything's going to be easy over there. Bye, mom. You know, but it's just not. It's um, really lonely, really lonely. And I think my dad had this idea that I needed to be in the house all the time. Um, but he didn't, he couldn't really spend time with me because he just had a ton of work to do. He did sometimes. Um, but it was very lonely to have someone nearby who wouldn't spend time with you. It's almost worse than if they're just somewhere else. Um, having the tangible evidence that they don't want to be with you. That was the first time I was like, when I was younger, it didn't feel like that. He was there and then he was gone and I had my life. But to have him in the other room was really painful. And then I think also hadn't, we hadn't talked about what happened when I was younger. We hadn't, I hadn't processed it in any meaningful way. Of course, I was in high school and 
he hadn't. And so here we are together with this elephant always in the room, and I just kind of fell apart. And also, I was an adolescent. I mean, give me a break. I was like crazy, you know, because adolescents are crazy. Uh, but was there something about the heat? I felt like, well, it's California. It's not that cold, but there was no heat, you know, in the downstairs. Because And he would have had to redo the whole system. I mean, he could have also gotten me a space heater or I could have thought of it. So I'm writing this book and I'm like, there's no heat. I didn't get a new pair of jeans. I had to do the dishes every night. And I, and I show this draft to my ex-boyfriend and he says, Lisa, I, you know, I appreciate it was hard, but I know you. I knew you then and you always get what you want. So I think you're not really being honest about this. And which is not to say that there was heat in the downstairs, which is not to say that I had more than two pairs of jeans. Is that terrible? I mean, which is not to say that like I got to, you know, that I didn't have to do the dishes every night, just that I think these things, all these little things I fixated on were really kind of a, a way of trying to get at this bigger thing. But it also, you talk about his value system. Like this was part of what he thought was the right value system, was it not? A sense of you earn it or you don't get it easily. That you make, that what you make in your life is what you do with your own hands. And I think that's a beautiful idea. The problem is, you know, we didn't have an easy time emotionally and there had, there was some pretty big stuff that had happened when I was young. So it, but I kind of wanted him to pay me off a little bit. I, I kind of wanted him to, like, I think I would have been bought for cheap. Um, I realized that. Like, if he'd bought me a really nice stereo and a car, I bet I would have been willing to sort of be done with my resentment about, or not resentment, but my, I mean, just tidal wave of pain about what had happened. I would have thought, okay, the car, the, the radio, I'll close my heart and I'm fine. And he just refused. And that was our fight. And he didn't have the skills. I mean, I don't know. This is maybe boring. I'm. It's not. I'm, okay. He didn't have the skills, I don't think, to, to work through it with me. But he did have the skill to not buy me off. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing to do. I mean, I even with my almost two-year-old, to be consistent in not, you know, to be consistent uh, in what you believe. I, I bet it's it's hard. It seems hard for me. I bet it's hard with you. So, so that was a painful fact, those two things coming together, that we couldn't work it out, but he wasn't going to buy his way out of it. But given the fact that we were living in the real world, it was a better alternative than many. It, does that make sense? Yeah. Does, I mean, is she the only one who, does it make, I don't, does it make sense? No, it totally does. I just want to talk about what he kept saying to you at the end, which struck me. Oh, he kept me. on saying, I owe you one, which I thought was that, it's like, it, it was a, it was like a, so he and knows, you weren't to blame. He knows he's dying. Yeah. And he's saying, I owe you one. Which is the weirdest phrase, meaning he never, I'd never heard him say anything like that before. And it did seem like a little bit of a response that I feel ripped off. It was the. It was the thing you want to hear. Did he apologize? Yeah, I'm sorry. I was crying. He was crying. I mean, he was on probably significant drugs. He didn't cry a lot before that. 
Um, but still, it felt real. And he was ta- we were talking about high school, and he was like, oh, it was so hard. Why was it so hard? I'm like, well, there were parenting books you could have read. No. But I was like, just to hear that. You know, that I was, you weren't to blame. You weren't to blame. I owe you one. I owe you one. I owe you one. Were you oh, seeing felt him, so good. Were you seeing him a lot at the, at the end? It was really just hard because. Like, was it daily? Or no, you, no. I was living in New York and I was going there every month or two. And it was just. Was it clear that it like, was um, not survivable and that this, I mean, at a certain point. It was clear it wasn't survivable, but it had been going on for like a decade, you know. So, or, I mean, I don't know how long it had been going on for a while. And. So it wasn't like a death watch. At this point, I think anybody, this was a month before he died, and I think anyone logical who had any sense at all would have understood that we were close to the end. But, and I wonder if this happens to other people. I haven't read about it, but there, maybe it is the magical thinking, but there was a feeling of this could just go on forever. Also, I'd put my life on hold to such a degree to be coming home, and I didn't want to. I was so angry that I was coming at, like, like, you did this, you weren't around when I was younger, and now I'm coming to visit you? This feels creepy, like I'm after money or something. Like, ugh, you know? But but friends kept on saying, like, after the person's dead, it's over. You know, I said, why are you trying to get me to go back? I don't want to go back and see this person. Do you understand? It's awful, and it's hard, and I'm never going to get an apology. We're not going to have, like, this moment. And friends would say, but you have to keep on going and trying, because once they're gone, they're gone. And of course, I'd never had I had never had anyone I was close to die before. So I didn't, it's true, understand the finality of it. But trusting people I loved, I kind of kept on arriving. And for a while, I'd sort of try to avoid him. Like I'd go all the way to see him and then I'd maybe pop in and then like, so he wouldn't say something horrible and then die and then that would be it. <laughs> like if I just avoided him, you know, so, and I'm avoidant anyway. I mean, I just try to avoid things that are terrible, of course. Um, did you feel wholly welcome, though? And, and not just by, I'm not talking about him, but by the rest of the family. Like, do you? No, it was sometimes I felt welcomed and other times I didn't. And I couldn't tell when and I wasn't staying in the house. And it was just, it was, it was very hard. Mm. Thank you, Lisa. Thank for you. This. Thank you so much. It was really an honor. Thank you. That was Lisa Brennan-Jobs talking to Abigail Pogerbin. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Our music was written and performed by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes, and if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome, and be sure to subscribe for future episodes.